Welcome in to Chasing Interesting. I'm Greg Hoffman. Very much appreciate you listening to this here podcast, part two of two in the Talk to the People Who Are Trying to Represent You series of this podcast. Last week, uh, thanks again to Mary Barthelson for coming on the show. Appreciate her time. And this week, the man who has been representing the district I live in, District 36 in Virginia, for 40 years. Delegate Ken Plum, you can just call him Ken. At least that's what he told me to call him. I, I, I said, Delegate Plum, how are you? And he goes, good, call me Ken. I was like, all right, Ken, how are you? Good. So uh, he, he was great and just finished that conversation. And I will do a little bit more recap at the end in terms of my reflections on these two conversations. But I uh, would certainly encourage anyone who is uh, a neighbor to listen to both. Make your decision. Understand what it is that you want in a representative from the views that you have to the specific policies and how those two things come together into ultimately getting done. Because what I find really interesting about politics is impact versus intent. And there are people certainly out there who have incredible intentions and the best of intentions to try to create the world through the way that they see it. But do you have the ability and the skills to have the impact to ultimately get those things done? And what you can get done on the state level is astounding, and it's why I wanted to dive more into this race and ultimately how the people that go to Richmond and work in the General Assembly shape our lives. And my life is someone who lives in this state, and obviously that can carry over to how the state representatives, wherever you are listening, do that for your state. So I'll reflect a little bit more on how that comes together in this race at the end. But for right now, my chat with Delegate Ken Plum, representative in the 36th District of Virginia. Absolute pleasure to be joined by Ken Plum. He is running again for the seat he holds right now to represent me and uh, all my neighbors in the General Assembly of Virginia, the 36th district in the House of Delegates. And Ken, I really appreciate your time. And I'd love to start before we talk about the campaign and, and some of the issues at hand here about some perspective that you have from the fact that you've held that seat for, for quite a while now and the, the change that has happened in the state of Virginia. This I mean, it, it, Richmond is, was the capital of the Confederacy. It, the history of Virginia being red is long storied and not particularly uh, flattering. But we have seen since about a decade ago a shift from red to purple now to seemingly solidly blue, not just at the presidential level, but we now have seen a progressive movement at, in the body that you serve. So when when did you see this coming? Did you see this coming? And how surprised and, and I'm sure pleased are you to see this change in the way the state of Virginia thinks and operates? Well, Craig, your observation is certainly correct. There have been major transformative changes in Virginia in the years that I've been there. And as a student of history, I've looked at the 400 years of history and some of it's not really, really nice. But the last two years, I think, have been the most transformative, progressive years in Virginia's history. We have passed major legislation moving Virginia clearly in the leadership in the South, but also in the nation. We've passed some bills that make us first in the nation in progressive legislation. Uh, that's why I'm excited to continue to be there. And it's why I'm running again, because while we have a, now a Democratic majority in the General Assembly, 
uh, 55-45 in the House and 21-19 in the Senate, that's we're cutting it pretty close. And we want to make sure that in these elections coming up that we could keep our Democratic majority and that we finish some work that we've been doing. We've made major strides in the last two elections, excuse me, in the last two sessions, but we also want to build on that and, do, and finish some of the work that we want to be doing, have been doing. And we also want to institutionalize what we have there so it doesn't suddenly disappear. What, how were you guys able to not just propose, but ultimately pass this legislation? I mean, is it just a lack of fear of repercussions from the other side that we see so often in Washington, where I feel like Washington Democrats are scared of their own shadows, they're scared of Joe Manchin, they're scared of what Republicans might say. And for a state like Virginia, that has the same polls that we have, obviously, at the federal level in D.C., which gets a lot more attention. That's why I reference it. But it, it seems like you guys just powered through and said, like like you said, not just the first in the South to do a lot of this, but there are some laws on the books that are models for other places like Washington, you know, Washington State, California, that others have followed. So, so why and how were you able to accomplish those things? The outcome of the 2019 elections. What we did in 2019, and it's hard to know how it is that we accomplished that, it probably was the influence of the national elections and what was going on in the national government, that there was a, a revolt on the part of the minds of the people. And they went to the polls in huge numbers, and they voted, and they voted a Democratic majority. And when you did that, suddenly, and, and what you'll find in the legislative halls is you don't pass bills because of you made a great speech or you have the best argument. You pass bills because you have a majority vote to pass the bill. And that's what we lacked in the past. And now that we were able to get through a, a decisive election in 2019, and I want to credit to people of Reston, Reston voters. Uh, while I was not opposed in that election, Reston voters work with me as we work in other districts to make sure that like-minded uh, elect, uh, legislators got elected. And when we did that, we had the numbers. When we had the numbers, we were able to move forward. And so that's the ultimate secret of it. And that's why coming up uh, with the primaries this year and the general election this year, it's so important that we elect people who share our values and people who are willing to take the risk. And if there's one thing that I uh, bring, I think, to the legislature these days is a recognition that if you hang in there, you can get the work done. Uh, I have a number of new members who take a look at me and realize that while we got rid of the death penalty this year, thank heavens, I've been opposed to the death penalty for 40 years. Uh, it takes a while to get things done. You got to have guts to do it. Uh, the uh, voters in Reston have been most understanding. I've been able to come back home and tell them why I represent progressive views and they represent progressive views and we've had a good run. And I want to make sure we seal that off with putting some of these things uh, firmly into the Constitution or into law such that they won't be turned over in another election cycle. I don't know if uh, someone who's been serving for 40 years gets asked about their origin story too often, but I'd like to ask, you're you're a white guy from the suburbs who's 79 years old. How did you get into to politics 40 years ago? And have you always been a, a progressive person? Like how much of your views changed over 40 years as someone who seemingly is still ahead of the curve and, and I would say left of center in the Democratic Party even? You know, I, I'd like to be able to give you a really straight answer to that, but I will tell you it's kind of complicated. And the fact that I always wanted to be in elective office, I always wanted to be in public service. Even when I was a kid, it was a dream I had. Uh, when I studied in school, the history and government classes were my favorites. When I went to college, I studied political science. I worked in campaigns and so on. 
So when people say they want to be a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, whatever they want to be, I want to be a politician. I want to be somebody who is making the decisions on behalf of the community. And it's changed drastically. When I first ran for office, I was running in opposition to the then leftover remnants of the bird machine, a democratic machine. And I was running as a progressive Democrat. And while I would not have been able to get elected dog catcher downstate, I was able eventually to get elected a delegate in Northern Virginia. And so uh, over the years, we went from when I was first in a, a um, majority of 75 of 100 members of the House of Delegates who were Democrats. But it was a very conservative body. And I found myself in opposition to so much of what Democrats stood for then. And we also governed with an arrogance such that we eventually lost the majority. I wasn't surprised at all. We simply were not in touch with people. And so then we uh, saw the Republicans take over. And my gosh, they had learned all the bad lessons from the Democrats. And they were no better at all. And so once again, I'm sitting on the sidelines. But now six, we come to the elections of 2019. And we've got like-minded people uh, working for the betterment of Virginia. And incidentally, too, also, I think, representing the best values that Virginia had back in our foundings. All men are created equal. All persons are created equal. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That's what we represent now. Some call that uh, progressive. I say it's the basics of our government. And uh, it's been a lot of change. Um, I personally, uh, my, my dad was a union member, uh, coming out of the Depression. I think that probably had an influence on me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not overly religious, but I'm an ethical person, a, a moral person, and that influences my thinking. And to me, that all falls down to being a progressive Democrat. I would agree as someone who uh, considers themselves many of those same things. Um, what was your reaction to getting primary? Well, I will tell you that I haven't been uh, challenged at all in general elections and so on for about a decade. And I explained to people that, well, that's convenient for me. I don't think it's good for democracy. And while it would be convenient for me not to have an opponent, it really actually is good for democracy because what it will, what it will permit us to dis have the kind of discussion that you and I are having now, and it will permit us to um, once again go to the people with a message. And um, as an old school teacher, part of the, my career was teaching school, teaching history and government. Uh, I like to talk about what I'm doing. I could talk about the importance of what we're doing. So having a primary and having a general election requires me to do a little different work. But the fact of the matter is, I really think the way you get reelected is to be effective in office. So I've been working hard to uh, be effective in office and I continue to do that and think that'll carry me through the primary and the general election. What specifically do you make of your opponent, Ms. Barthelson? I actually don't know her. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever met her and I am not aware of her being in touch with my office on any matter. So I really can't pass a judgment. I just take her at her values that she wants to run and uh, hopefully we'll have many opportunities to appear before the public and so on to discuss the issues and that people make a decision. She talked a lot, uh, as talked a lot in her announcement and, and her, obviously her interview with me last week uh, about systems engineering. That is her profession. That is her vocation. She wants to apply different problem solving techniques to some of the problems that we have societally. How do you approach problem solving and how do you approach creating legislation to solve the problems that we have? Yeah, it. Um, I can remember back when I first ran, a seasoned legislator said to me, you make things sound so simple. 
And of course, what I learned when I got there was quite not so simple. It's uh, while I believe in creative problem solving and used to teach that in my classes to my children and so on. When you get to Richmond and when you get to the legislature, you have one other element you add, and that's politics. And you add also personalities. So while all those things uh, need to be an ingredient of it, uh, it really is much more complex than getting legislation passed. Uh, what, what I just felt uh, is that back in the um, 1990s, we were seeing emerging technology issues uh, coming before us. And there's no one going to be ever an expert in all the technology stuff that we face. So I introduced a bill in 1997 that set up the Joint Commission on Technology and Science. And for a number of years, I chaired that commission until the Republicans took over. And what the Joint Commission did and continues to do is to take the most recent uh, hot issue, if you will. Uh, at that time, the first issue we had was using um, uh, uh, virtual signatures, uh, electronic signatures on documents. Big deal then. So what we did as nine legislators on the commission is we formed a technical advisory committee made up of 25 people from business industry, academia, and consumers to work together with us over a period of a year. And I'm pleased to say that when we put in our, our bill, one of the first in the country, it passed without, amend without any amendments. It passed because we had had work group work on it. So uh, while I think we can take a systems approach, we need to take a look at the systems approach we have in place. And that's the one that recognizes that with technology, you have various uh, stakeholders, you have various interests, and somehow all those must be taken into account for legislation to work. Most recently, um, the Joint Commission worked on a data privacy bill, the second such bill to be passed in the nation. Uh, some will say it doesn't go far enough, and some will say it goes too far, and that means that we got, probably got a good balance in terms of what we were trying to do, and we worked it through with uh, the affected industries, people in academia who have views on these kind of matters, as well as uh, citizen interest groups. Uh, that's, that's a way to go about problem solving. The second item, as I mentioned before, is the politics of the thing. You have to make sure that you are um, amenable to working with other people and understanding their interests. You don't have to agree with them, but you have to show an understanding. And I have the advantage of having grown up in rural Virginia down in the Shadow Valley. And so I know what downstate Virginians are like. Uh, and that has helped me also to be able to work in that environment. I have two follow-ups on on some two different things that you just said. I'll start where you ended, which is the idea of bipartisanship and talking to people who are may not think like us. Um, and I, it's something that obviously we see at the federal level. We see it playing out in uh, really disappointing and and non-democratic ways at, in Washington, where it just seems like the Republican position has become the opposite of whatever Democrats want to do. What are those relationships like at the state level and how have they changed even over the last, let's say, five years in, in the Trump era, we'll call it what it is, where that adversarial nature has become a calling card and a seen at least by many on the right as a political positive. How, how have you seen that a change and how do you approach the idea of working with people who may not agree with you? Yeah, it, um, it is not an easy matter by any means. As I point out, sometimes there are fundamental differences. Uh, on a lot of issues, I'm open to uh, discussion and so on, but there are some fundamental principles, for example, that I'm not willing to give up on. I'm not willing, for example, to negotiate away the notion of ending the death penalty. I'm not willing to negotiate away the fact that there are too many Jim Crow 
remnants still in our code and we need to get rid of those. We, need, we have laws that greatly uh, disadvantage people of color uh, and we need to get rid of those. I'm not gonna bargain those away. If there are lesser items that affect a local community and I can be of help to someone, I'd try to do that. But what has interfered with that has been the strict partisanship approach that both political parties have taken where you have binding caucuses. You see that at a federal level and you see it somewhat on the Republican side at the state level where the caucus leadership decides a position and then all members are expected to go, go with that. I wanna tell you that I've had a position on my caucus from the very beginning and that is to say, I'm not gonna be part of a binding caucus. I'm pleased to say to you, Democrats do not have a binding caucus in the Virginia General Assembly. We are allowed to make our own decisions and now we've got a bunch of like-minded people who are willing to uh, work on um, issues like ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment, which we did. People who are willing to get rid of barriers to reproductive rights for women, and we did that. So when we got a bunch of like-minded people together, you don't need a binding caucus. When you have a binding caucus, you're forcing people to take positions that you know, on a, and I had a good friend on the Republican side with whom I used to say regularly, you gotta be ashamed of yourself because I knew he didn't really think that way, but he was caught in a binding caucus. So I, I'm not part of that and I don't wanna be, and I'm willing to work in my bipartisan way as far as I can go, but on some matters of principle, it's not a matter of bipartisanship, it's a matter of good government. Somewhat along those lines, this other thing that caught my ear as you were talking uh, an answer ago was the idea that if some people are mad on this side and some people are mad on this side, that means you probably got it right. As an observer of politics, as a citizen, what what is what is an acceptable and and I guess maybe reasonable is the better term expectation for policy? If I'm a very progressive person personally and I want to see the most progressive form, because not because I'm playing some political game, because I think it is the best solution to the problem. How reasonable is it to so I don't drive myself mad to accept some level of compromise? Uh, there are two items of it. On the one hand, uh, there are instances in which a compromise uh, may be necessary. For example, legalizing marijuana is a bill before us now. Uh, we passed a bill that delayed that until uh, 2024, excuse me. We now, I think next week, are going to amend that to make it uh, 2021, which is really what we started off doing. So a compromise like that can be accommodated. But again, if you're back to fundamental principles of uh, good government and citizenship, uh, not going to bargain those away. Makes sense to me. Uh, another thing that I'd be interested on in the timeline of specific to legislation that was passed uh, relatively recently is the minimum wage increase. Obviously, we are in an area where there's a much higher cost of living. Uh, downstate, there's much lower. The effects on businesses and individuals are going to change accordingly. Is there any plan to move up the minimum wage timeline and, and what kind of uh, what, what kind of things could be done even a more hyper-local level to maybe increase the minimum wage in our area where seven twenty-five an hour or even the, the $9 and change that it's going to go up to soon is, is still, at least in my eyes, not enough? It's not enough. I've introduced the minimum wage bill for the last 10 years. I want to say to you that the way I explain the bill and the way I still believe it is that we're, first, we're not talking about raising the minimum wage. We're talking about truing up the minimum wage to the purchasing power it had when it was, it was first put into place. And if you do that, you start off at something around $12 or so, this truing it up to its purchasing power. So not only have we not raised the minimum wage, 
we have allowed the minimum wage to lose its purchasing power so that people who are working on the bottom end of the scale can buy less than they could buy back when the minimum wage went into effect. So while we made a step towards that, uh, doing that uh, last year in the legislature, I still think we need to make another step towards that. And I believe with a strong outpouring of uh, Democrats at the polls this fall, we'll be able to do that, to move up that increase. And once we move it up, then not allow it to fall behind in purchasing power as we've done, but rather to um, index it to uh, the growth of inflation and uh, keep it then at a, a purchasing power level. It, some people say, well, small business, and of course, small business, really small businesses are exempted from it. But if a business plan is built around the fact that it has to pay workers less than a living wage, it's not a good business plan. Uh, I don't know any reason why we can expect others to sacrifice uh, for someone's uh, business objective if that business objective does not take into account raising enough revenue to be able to pay people a decent wage. Um, I'm also curious on the timeline front, this is a much more immediate impact, where we are with COVID vaccinations. I, I keep checking the website daily, trying to figure out when we're going to get into to phase 1C. That's that's when I get to go get my shot. Sure. What has been the progress and, and what has the Biden administration's uh, you know revamp of the entire system done for the state of Virginia and for our community? How, how have those timelines shifted over the last four months? Oh, amazingly. Uh, over the last two months, it has been dramatically shifted. Virginia, uh, Fairfax County should finish 1B uh, I believe by in the next couple of weeks. So stick around. One C is going to come up pretty soon. Uh, what the Biden administration did was to increase the supply. For a while in Fairfax, one of the reasons we were so far behind is we didn't have the vaccine. It wasn't coming fast enough. Secondly, we had some software problems with trying to register everybody as fast as we were registering. We got those all worked out. And now that the vaccine is flowing, Virginia now is ranked among, like fourth among the states in being able to take the vaccine and get it in somebody's arm in terms of speed. So we're doing a good job. Recognizing Fairfax, you're part of a 1.1 million population. And when you do that, we old characters got uh, vaccine first and uh, there were a lot of us. And so that pushed the line back a little bit, but it's going to come soon. Uh, last question I want to ask you, Ken, is about, you mentioned your background as an educator, and th this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, the more I've thought about politics over the last five or so years since I moved to D.C. And, and really came of age, I think, as a human being who's aware of his surroundings. Uh, the early 20s are not great for men. Uh, but as, as I've thought of politics and the way really that I think generally a lot of Americans have a worldview. I think education plays such an enormous part of it. And I, for, for your knowledge and background for the listeners as well, who might be listening and don't know me, I was raised in South Carolina. I, I went through South Carolina public schools and I think about some of the things that were taught specific to the civil war and Jim Crow and, and those types of issues, the history of this country and, and how whitewashed that it was. I, I'm curious as we continue forward, hopefully with a progressive majority in both chambers of the house of delegates or of the general assembly within the house of delegates and the state Senate, what kind of education reform could come and what kind of impact that could have on our next couple of decades in the state of Virginia? Uh, huge changes are coming. We have uh, revised uh, much of the Virginia code this past two years, taking that Jim Crow stuff out. We passed a, uh, a law taking Harry Byrd's statue off of Capitol grounds. 
Harley Bird ran the Bird machine. It ran massive resistance and the, uh, the uh, ultra conservative politics of Virginia most of the last century. So those are just a couple of examples of things that are happening where we're writing the textbooks correctly. We're taking the whitewash out. We're recognizing the lost cause was truly a lost cause. Uh, it was a uh, unfortunate example, as were so many other laws that were passed into Jim Crow law, an example of white supremacy. And we've got to take that out, and we've got to recognize that our, our uh, civics and history classes and so on have to be taught from a problem-solving perspective where we have children understand really what went on and how it is that they can help determine their own future through the people they elect and their involvement in, in civics and so on. So praise heavens that we now are past that, uh, white, uh, that whitewashing stuff that went on and what a dastardly part of our history. That's part of the reason I'm so doggone excited. Uh, of course, I've been around a long time, but I haven't lost my enthusiasm at all. And I see such glimmers of hope, uh, such change coming about, and I want to be a part of it uh, for this coming term to, to make sure those progressive measures stay in place. If people want to support your campaign, where can they go? What what should they know? Yeah, it's uh, KenPlum.com is my website. And I do a weekly electronic newsletter. If they go to KenPlum.com, you can click on my newsletter. And at six o'clock every Wednesday morning, it'll be there. And it'll discuss the latest hot issue in my commentary. I don't hold anything back. It also is filled with information about the latest COVID uh, information, the latest civic involvement activities you can participate in. So it's available to you for free, comes right to your home uh, by the internet and uh, kenplum.com. All right, Ken, we, I appreciate the time here on the podcast and uh, thank you for your service over uh, not just the last couple of years that you've represented me, but for 40 years uh, in the General Assembly of Virginia. Good. My pleasure, thank you. Delegate Ken Plum here on Chasing Interesting. Now, I approach these interviews certainly with a journalistic eye because that's my background. I approach everything pretty much with a journalistic eye. That's the way I see the world. But I also approach these as a voter, as a citizen, as someone who is vying to be represented by one of these two people, Ken Plum or Mary Barthelson. And with that, and the fact that it's my podcast and I can do whatever I want here, uh, I think it's completely fair to share reflections and ultimately a decision. Uh, obviously, I will continue to watch how this race plays out in different uh, propositions. And I can honestly say that if either of these two individuals wins, or one of these two will win, so whichever wins, I, I think that I'm in good progressive hands. Uh, for those that have listened to this podcast for a while, you know that is where I sit. That is how I see the world through a how can we make it better, more equitable lens and not just through uh, hopes and dreams and, and platitudes really, but through real practical solutions that create the outcomes that create not just equality, but equity. And I, I do think that both candidates have good ideas. They, they have pure intentions and they bring different skill sets to the table that can accomplish those goals in different ways. But if it ain't broke, don't fix it on some level applies here. Ken Plum has been representing Reston 
the town where I live for 40 years. He has been steadfast in his opposition to how the government uh, at the state level was run for a long time, as he described, and he has been an enormous part of the progressive success over the last specifically two years since the majority was taken in both houses of the General Assembly. And he is someone who understands the system at a really high level and who, as I talked about with Mary last week and asking her why she felt compelled to run, does have seniority, that matters. That if I have an issue and I want it elevated to the highest level of the Democratic Party and thus to the top of what people are caring about as our representatives in Richmond, I have a direct line via Ken Plum, and not because I had him on a podcast and I'm anyone special. I reached out saying, hey, I'm a constituent who has a podcast, not I am someone who has been on the radio and uh, whatever level of clout that could potentially get me. I, I don't believe that that makes me any different than any other constituent uh, for any congressperson around the country, uh, for any representative around the country. And so any any constituent, any citizen of Ruston uh, would have that same line. And I think that matters. And I think it matters a lot. I think understanding, you know, there's a couple of times where Mary answered questions and said, like, I need to do more research on that, which is a position I certainly respect. But one that I also think if you're currently running the race, you know, you, you can't to use a fitness analogy, because that's how my brain works. Like you can't train for the race during the race. You have to put in the work beforehand, and while I think that she can certainly contribute to making our community better, and some of the ideas she has could be channeled into positive ways, I know that Ken has done that work. He's run that race before, and he's he's trained for it and has been uh, running the race for, for 40 years, and so that is essentially where I come down, where the the his ability to communicate to multiple people, his understanding of where the trap doors and uh, the, the levers of power are matters to me. And I think that I would love to see them work together. I would love for, you know, Ken said, and, and this this honestly matters to me too. And I, I look, is this political gamesmanship? Maybe on some level, uh, Ken is a 40-year veteran. But the fact that he said that, you know, you have a constituent who is running against you and is primarying you and has had no contact with your office. How hard have you really pushed for change if you have not reached out to your elected representative to try to do it as a citizen? That your first inclination is, oh, I have to go all the way to the top, not I'm going to try to exercise whatever power I have. Maybe I'm being victim to a political veteran and, and a political act, but it's also, as long as it's accurate information, uh, would be would be pretty, pretty formative to me as well. So that's kind of where I stand. I hope they ultimately wind up working together. I hope that the best of what they both the offer can help move Virginia forward and continually down the path that it's on. But uh, considering the path that it's on right now is a pretty good one, I, I think I'm ultimately going to wind up voting to staying on that current path. So that's just one man's opinion, but... It's the man who hosts and created this podcast, and you're listening to it, so that's the only opinion that you get. Uh, if you want more from me, uh, definitely check out some of the other podcasts in this feed. Uh, the, the inspiration for doing this little two-part series came from my chat with Courtney Emerson, author of After You Vote, so I would certainly recommend that one. If you want 
perspective from other state legislators around the country. Brian Sims uh, is a state legislator in Pennsylvania. That was a really great interview. He's now running for lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. So if you want another leading progressive voice with a little bit different perspective and opinions, you can certainly check out that podcast as well. I'm on Instagram at Craig underscore Hoffman on Twitter at Craig Hoffman. If you like what you heard, lot more coming so make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening right now apple podcast spotify stitcher google play just hit that subscribe button leave us a nice rating unless you hated it in which case you can just mosey on with your day it'll be it'll be great you'll have a wonderful beautiful afternoon uh i'm craig this is my podcast thanks for checking it out and i'll see you next time on chasing interesting